0: Today on Humans on Rights, my guest is Raymond Frogner. Raymond is the head archivist for the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation, or as it's sometimes known as the NCTR. The National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation is the repository for all the materials collected by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada purposed to compile the complete history and legacy of Canada's residential school systems going to be a lot to have a conversation about in this, uh, in this episode, but uh, I want to say welcome, Raymond, to Humans on Rights. Thank you for having me. Raymond, let's uh, start at the beginning. Uh, tell us a little bit about where you were born, a little bit about your history, who you are, your family, uh, what part of the world you, you came to, uh, to in. And then we'll get into, obviously, about your role as the head archivist at the NCTR. But tell us a little about who you are.
1: I was born and raised in, in Port Alberni, which is a small town on the northwest coast of Vancouver Island, not far from Tofino, which most people are more familiar with. Um, but it is the entire area is laced with residential schools, which of course growing up I was never instructed on um, in, in any of my um, um, kindergarten to to grade 12 of uh, courses of any sort whatsoever. So I, I grew up in in the, in the very common sort of colonial silences uh, that existed in our generation about the issues of residential schools. Although, having said that, growing up, I had um, my neighbours were Indigenous, my friends at school, limited though they, though they were, because Port Alberni had one of the largest residential schools on the West Coast and one of the most notorious sexual predators as well in Arthur Plint. And it was interesting. I did have friends in elementary school growing up that were Indigenous, and the closer I got to grade 12, the lower the number of Indigenous kids that were in our school um, to the point, of, I think, in grade 12, there was maybe just a couple in a, in a large in a large high school. So from there, I went on to university and didn't get, uh, again, much instruction without pressing for it on the issue of residential schools. Taking a step back, um, in all of this time, I never heard anything about my mother's family to the point where even when she passed away of cancer, she never mentioned. Um, my sisters and I would ask her and she never would mention Growing up, who her family was, so I knew nothing whatsoever about her relatives, her mother, father, um, siblings, anything. Um, growing up, and that's just the way she wanted it, and that became accepted. That it was a, it was a tremendous silence, which is uh, one of the um, common characteristics of of Canadian society was the silences of that generation for various reasons. And it turns out that as a um, after graduation, I went off to work and. Um, I got a phone call one day from my sister who said, basically, are you sitting down? And I said, uh, yes. And she goes, uh, well, I have some news to you. One, our, our mom was Indigenous. And two, we have a brother. It turned out that my mom was actually from near uh, Duncan's Reserve you know, in the Peace River District. And she had relatives who were part of that First Nations community. And she attended um, Shastafari Mission, which was a Catholic mission. And of course, <clears throat> and this is a very common um, expression. Um, that's used um, all across all across the North um, that uh, children went to convents. They were often talked about as convents, not residential schools, not, not missions of any kind for Indigenous children, but convents of, general, of a general sort. Um, and again, I think sometimes that she was just hiding the fact that she did have these, um, this Indigenous background. But um, the way it went was it turns out that um, my mom did attend this, the Shasbury Mission until the age of 16 when she had a child and was immediately expelled. By, by the Catholic um, administration, of course, she left the child with her aunt um, and ran away. Part of the mystery is that remains: is how did she manage to take the train from Dunvegan south to Edmonton as a sixteen-year-old girl with no money? But she ended up in as a sort of a, a teenage runaway in in Edmonton. Um, and I often think about the missing and murdered women's inquiry and how lucky she was that she actually survived that that experience. But that's where she met my father, and they moved to the West Coast, and that's where my memory of everything uh, began. But the way it worked was, um, it was actually our, our half brother, David, that tracked us down and um, contacted my sister. And then since then I've met him several times and um, I've, oft- I've gone back up to um, the area where he's from and I met my relatives of my mother, um, which was quite, quite interesting because they had tons of questions about what she was like as an adult. And I had the same number of questions of, to them about what she was like as a child. When I came back to the NCTR, because by this time I was working there, I actually sent an email off to the band council of Duncan's Reserve, finding a name in the band council, not that was um, one of my relatives on a family tree that my half-brother had made for us to to demonstrate to us that we were actually from him, of that family. And um, I sent the email saying, this might sound strange, but I wonder if there's any potential that we're actually related. And about five hours later, I got a return email from the bank council members saying I've spoken with elders and it turns out we are cousins. And that's how that silence was, was finally overcome. But I think it's a very typical Western Canadian story about uh, the colonial experience, residential schools, especially the identity of women in this entire equation of colonialism. And that's kind of how I found myself. But by then it was interesting. I'd already had a, a tremendous interest in Indigenous um, history and rights and those. was um, I was in archival school when my brother tracked me down. I graduated from my MA in history, and I was going back to archival school and tracked us down. So my, my focus in archival school was on archives and Indigenous rights, and since then it always has been, and that's how I ended, up. I ended up. I worked for the University of Alberta for 10 years as a private records archivist, where I taught a course in Indigenous rights. I moved down to the Royal BC Museum, where I, um, one of my, part of my portfolio was a focus on Indigenous matters, I wrote a UNESCO application to have the Douglas Treaties recognized in the Memory of the World program and began to work on the Ida Halpern papers for the same purpose. And those are both now inscribed as part of the UNESCO Memory of the World program. And um, I think it was partly my work there, as well as my studies and publications that got me accepted as the head of archives for the
0: NCTR, which is where I'm working now. That's a tremendous journey. Uh if, if you don't mind, Raymond, I'd like to just go back a little bit to when you're in school in Port Alberni, as you say, when you look back now, what was there in front of you you didn't see? Was there, were, were you attending a school where Indigenous children were attending as well? I mean, were they housed in a different place or what sort of relationship with the Indigenous children of your schoolmates, if I can use that term? Where would they have come from? Where would they, they be living at that time? I didn't
1: know that much, and, and myself included. Um, uh, the one thing I did notice was um, a particular level of poverty in some of the children. But having said that, I grew up in the same poor neighborhood as they did. I, I, I didn't recognize them as any, anyhow significantly different than myself in terms of material um, possessions. Um, none of us had much, but I mean, we all did seem to, seemed to be fine.
0: And were you aware, just Raymond, at that time, even though you were very young and, you know, I just, uh, I grew up in Punishai, Saskatchewan. So I was very much, uh, much like you, I was uh, exposed to residential schools, but from the colonization side, I never saw it until much later in life. So I just would like to come back to you for a second, Raymond, and say, when you grew up you know, as youngsters, I, the word discrimination wasn't something that we even kind of knew about at that point. You know, we just were in a place. And so we all did things together. But let me ask you, did you ever see that at any point? Did you ever see or did you ever see discrimination at that time that you might not have realized, but looking back later in life, clearly that's what it was? And I'm not talking about the colonization piece, it's really the out and out discrimination.
1: As I said, I, th- there was a clear poverty line that existed the areas of Port Alberni where there were um, Indigenous groups and families, um, there was a distinct level of poverty. My dad, for example, worked on He walked logs as a boom man um, uh, in Port Alberni, and many of his co-workers were Indigenous. Um, and I remember the one thing that he did complain about was the fact that there was, it was an insular group on the booms. But was, what was curious about that was that the insular group was made up of uh, veteran like law boom men and um, indigenous boom who kept to themselves and kept a very tight-knit group um, and didn't allow too many new people coming in, uh, which I remember my dad saying was probably not the best idea. But um, it, was, it was particularly poverty. Um, I can remember uh, in grade three, a house fire where an entire family was lost. Um, and our, our teacher at the time... Um, coming to class weeping and telling us that the entire family had been lost and one of the one of the kids from the family was in my class, another was in a grade above me um, and it was just a an unintended fire that destroyed um, the entire house but again it was I think you know part of the material conditions of the the, the poverty that the, was in existence I mean the reserve that was in Porto bernie was on the other side of the of the Somas canal and the interaction was limited um, and growing up. It seemed that goes more concerned with playing soccer than
0: talking about politics. Right, exactly. You know, I think that is uh, that's part of the awakening that we're now seeing as a nation. Right, most of us, so many of us. Raymond, how when you graduated from high school, when did you start to get interested or t- wanting to learn more about indigenous culture or you know some of the things that that you started to see? This is an area that I'm very Interested in, I'm fascinated about, and I want to do more research on it.
1: Um, and I, I went to Malespina College, and I did for my first two years simply for financial reasons. Before I went to UBC, and um, I had some good teachers in in the history program there that um, um, that exposed me to ideas about Indigenous history that had never been, you know, taught to me in any classes that I'd ever had before that. So it was really in those college classes that um, and a consciousness of the whole idea of colonialism and um, what it means to be, especially Western Canadian in, the, in that context. Um, that's where it began to be. Really, I really began to think critically about it.
0: And, and would you say, I mean, this is always, you know, it's, it's part of a learning journey we're going on as a nation. But if you look back Raymond, at that point, as you started to learn about colonization, the impact that it's had, would you say that your experience at that early stage of your career, was it as, Was it as if you were look back today? Would you say you know I that they really were understanding and really teaching, or was it really more of a just a skimming of the importance of it? I just want to get a sense of how much were they talking about the devastation of what colonization has done at that time when you were just beginning to learn from your level of interest.
1: There wasn't a focus on. I don't recall any kind of Edward Said style colonization courses or anything like that at that time um but it was beginning um and these are the times um this is in the 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 early 80s um so this was a time when there was sort of an indigenous movement towards rights collective rights in general um that was beginning and by the time i was in grad school um our grad class for example um was uh offered offered research opportunities and i remember one of them keith carlson took it um and he, he became the head of of the Faculty of History at the University of Saskatchewan. And he's now back at the University of the Fraser Valley. But um, he became a researcher for the Stolo First Nation um, for their land rights negotiations. And he came to that through his um, grads class at the University of Victoria. They simply asked for researchers. And at that time in particular, I can remember um, ideas about Indigenous identity percolating. Tina Liu's article about Dan Cramner's potlatch came out in the Canadian Historical Review. Um, So there were beginning to be um, significant critical issues being raised. By the time I was in grad school, um, uh, it was a constant constant source of dialogue and discussion in all of our classes.
0: And how many Indigenous students, professors, would you have had an opportunity to meet during that time?
1: Uh, We had an Indigenous um, woman in our grad class um, who I think went back to her community to do work. Um, I'd have to look up her name, I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, But uh, uh, she, for example, I was working at the student newspaper and I was able to convince her to write an opinion piece in the editorial page that had a, at UVic at the, um, the newspaper was called the Martlet. Um, And um, we did a special issue on colonialism at at that time, um, which was, which was fairly, um, I thought, fairly significant for its time. um, And it had a good response across the campus. Um, and she was very happy to be um, able to do that. And she went on to complete her thesis um, on, um, I think it was the uh, social programs uh, for Indigenous communities uh, on the West Coast. So at that time, it was there was definitely a groundswell of interest and consciousness um, in um, in law, in in academics, um, and in popular politics. Um, it was definitely a, you could you could you could sense the momentum. Um, and court decisions were actually opening the door to to, to significant um, challenges. I mean, after Calder, um, which was 72, 73, but after that, it became legitimate to use Indigenous um, traditions and customs in court as evidence of of rights and title. Um, <clears throat> and that opened the door in the 80s and 90s to um, us, uh, an enormous amount of, of uh, class action suits, um, issues regarding collective human rights by Indigenous groups to the point where Um, the Ursa was struck um, to try and move away from the courts um, and get to some kind of a a collective agreement across settler and Indigenous communities.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Raymond, I I wanted to just ask, uh, you know, your your experience. Uh, One of the things that has happened is, you know, we're seeing more and more issues going to court around land rights, around, you know, pipelines, you know, where it's very much aware of where we are today. But when you go back to some of the some of the early days when you were exposed to this, you know, you look at the conversations and educations and academia, would you say from your perspective that those were great conversations and they met a lot? But when this whole conversation about indigenous rights started to pivot from a human rights perspective, was because of decisions that were done in court, was that kind of a moment in time? Or would you say, look, we were well adversed in academia talking about all of these things? They were going to be part of our national conversation one way or another.
1: I would say yes, they would, they were going to happen. Um, the, the momentum was there. Um, indigenous activism, which actually began in the 60s, um, and even in the refusal of the white paper um, and those kinds of things. Calder was just a confirmation of a movement that was already growing. Um, and I think after that, um, you know, Garen and Sparrow and all of those big decisions, Bandra um, Pete, that um, sort of confirmed that there was, um, you know, Indigenous um, knowledge models and epistemologies that could be referenced for evidence of, of proof of, of rights and title. Um, I think all of those things um, were confirmed in by courts of law. Um, but it's, it's, I read an interesting piece by P.G. McHugh, who actually, um, He's an Oxford professor of uh, of Indigenous law, and um, he actually did some of his grad school work at the University of Saskatchewan. And he talked about um, the tremendous sense of optimism um, that there was, like, a, the, the potential that was there to to um, you know redesign understandings for for mutual recognition of rights in the in the eighties. Um, in as law students um, talking about you know what could be done in reshaping the constitution to, to, to make it a more participatory um, document. Um, and he did lament that you know, some significant court decisions sort of um, funneled and channeled some of that enthusiasm um, and some of that optimism about the potential for, for um, you know, a new constitution founded on mutual rights and human dignity, uh, or at least new interpretations of it um, happening. I mean we did get section thirty five in the Constitution act, um, which was which was a significant achievement and I mean it did constitutionally recognize aboriginal rights um, but the the sense of optimism and potential that they had at that time in the early eighties I think waned a bit in subsequent decisions um, once once the courts got their hands on um, the interpretations of what it meant in the Constitu- the new constitution for example um, and I wouldn't say that he's completely walked back from it but I think a lot of those um, a lot of that optimism and um, sense of potential and hope has been sort of um, tempered by by the realities of just the depth of the systemic racism of of the bureaucracies um, the internal colonization of the way the government functions um, all of those sort of hurdles that need to be overcome have kind of tempered that optimism um, but it's still there I think um, I, I, and I think it's it's um it's still happening. The momentum might have slowed a bit, but um, I think it's still an inevitable recognition of human rights that's going to continue.
0: Yeah, and and I think we are, as I said, I think we're 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 slowly waking up, you know, on this notion. And it, and and you know, the, the the tragedy is that as we're waking up as a nation, it's because we're going back and finding grave sites of murdered children. We're going back and finding things that you know that are so traumatic for indigenous peoples that it's hard for many people to really comprehend some of these, you know, you look at some of the stories when they come out and people look at it and say, that must've been another country. Certainly that couldn't be Canada. And yet it is who we are. And so let me, let me ask you, Raymond, in your capacity as head archivist for the national center for truth and reconciliation, you must have a massive, task of trying to take some of this information to put it into a process or a, make it available so that that Canadians can start to understand who we are as a nation and how we can learn about how we can advance this but certainly trying to learn to understand where we came from what, what are some of the challenges that you see and as you take on this job and become a big part of this conversation for this this country called Canada
1: First and foremost, um, I think we're still in a period of mourning. You talk to any of the community members from the communities that have, that the Dekemlups, Maryval, Cooper Island, um, in all of these places, when you speak with the community members and discuss the idea about further investigations and what they mean, um, it's, it's, uh, the, the sense of sorrow is palpable um, that, you know, like in chief Casimir, when she made her official pronunciation um, on the discovery, you know, her, her core message was to survivors, and that was that you are still remembered and loved. First and foremost, we have to have a period of mourning. I think um, people need to understand and, um, that, you know, anytime there's a recognition of, of, of loved ones lost, there has to be this period of not acceptance, but a recognition of what's happened to try and um, just to get your head and your heart around what's exactly happened before before moving forward. Um, I won't say rashly, but... You know, when emotions are so high um, and in all traditions, Western and Indigenous, there's always a period of mourning when these things happen. And I think it's completely um, legitimate at this time to think that this is what's the first step in doing all of this. Just a few weeks ago, I was at a National Council of Elders in Turtle Lodge. Um, and that was also what they were discussing was that, um, you know, there needs to be a time <clears throat> from this discovery, because this is the first time it's been really brought out in the open, where you know the loss is, is recognized, the loss is commemorated um, and, and in proper manner. Um, and, and one of the one of the things that I, <clears throat> I I think it's understandable. Speaking with one of the elders I was at Turtle Lodge, um, who was a Ashinabeg, he was saying, you know, in all of his teachings and learnings growing up as a young man and discussing this with other elders that were you know much older and wiser than he was as a as a young man, he said there's never been a time that he could ever recall or has ever learned of, where um, their culture and society had to deal with something like a mass grave. Um, in this kind of situation, it's it's not something, it's not something we deal with. It's not a common in in a global sense even. Um, it never and it shouldn't be. But I mean, there is no um, there's no federal laws regarding mass grave sites. There's no provincial legislation. And there certainly isn't any um, indigenous practice or custom or or traditional laws, and I and I mean I I put those on the same level. I mean traditional customs and laws. I don't want to by calling them traditional. I'm not you know limiting them in any way. But on an indigenous side as well, there is there's no there's no common practice to understand how to deal with them. That's great. Um, So that's first and foremost where we're at. Um, Getting over that sense of mourning, I think, will take time, but I also would um urge a sense of of um of just pragmatism, just to as I said, um at this time when emotions are running so high, um, is maybe not the best time to begin to plan and dive into these kinds of of of, of researches. Um and it has been kind of an interesting, almost uh, a knee-jerk reaction to these revelations. Um and just to put it into context, um. In 2018, I was approached by the Muskalgan First Nation in southern Saskatchewan. Um, and they came to me and said they, they wanted to investigate on my grave sites at Muskaugan. And at that, that time, at that time, no one was speaking about this. Um, it was common knowledge in the communities across the country, in the Decamlops, Cooper Island, in all of these places, Muskalgan, they all talked about it. Um, but amongst themselves or in you know, small local media, sometimes did stories on these things. But none of the national media picked up any had picked up any of it. And when Miskalgan um, Band Council came to me, um, they had explained that erosion, soil erosion is beginning, beginning to reveal some of the remains in these unmarked grave sites. So we set up a, um, uh, a project to investigate and, and see what we could be what could be done. We did archival research and discovered that the school had actually moved. And um, on the advice of the elders, they were warned that they were building the school on top of unmarked grave sites, but they built it anyway. Um, and some of the archival records show that the um, there was an acknowledgement by um, the Indian agent of the Muskegon area, um, and there, were, there was talk about a commemoration, but nothing was ever done. And that was in the 60s. Um, so we did go there, and based on um, we had a town uh, a town hall meeting with um, the Muskegon community. I met with band council, uh, we held ceremonies and did interviews with elders, and then we went to the school, and based on the oral histories, we investigated the area and um, returned again um, due to weather. We had to return again with um, archaeologists from the University of Saskatchewan and the University of Alberta, um, Terrence Clark from the University of Saskatchewan and Kisa Supernat at the U of A, and um, they brought ground penetrating radar, and um, we found 12 in one field, we found the evidence of twelve remains, um, and we made a documentary, a mini documentary on this, um, which I tried to make as available as I could. I brought it to the Association des Archivistes de Quebec and gave a presentation in French on the documentary. I brought it to the BC Museum Association. I posted it on our website and contacted other um, other uh, galleries and media outlets and. Nobody responded. I even brought it to to Mexico City for the International Council of Archives, and I there was almost there was one article that came out from that from the Washington Post, um, and nothing from Canada. That was twenty
0: eighteen. Wow. And so, so Raymond, let me just ask you: Why do you think that is? Why do you think there's no response?
1: A, a lack of understanding of what the implications meant, um, just what it was that 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 uh, documentary. And to be fair, it was a short it was five or six-minute documentary that we tried to promote a bit, Um, but it got no traction anywhere. Um, And I think it was, I mean, in a a typical daily news cycle, I think there was a lack of understanding of just what were these implications. Um, Although by then, I mean, at the same time, the TRC, by that time, done six years of investigations and published its final report. I mean, this was barely two and a half years after the final report got published in 2015. So I mean, unfortunately, um, media didn't pick it up and it didn't seem to catch the interest of, maybe it speaks to the the common understanding of of the residential schools um, in Canada. And partly there, I mean, there still isn't, um, and we've spoken with ministries of education across the country, there still is no core um, curriculum that involves an education on the history of residential schools in provincial education curricula. So. And I think there was a lack of understanding and maybe this in 2021, um, there had been by that time enough, um, enough discussion, enough conscious raising, um, enough study that people were, were ready to start to accept this reality. Um, and that they came in such a dramatic volume and so fast without warning. Uh, maybe that impact was also something significant. Because to be honest, um, in, in less than a month and a half, I did over 40 interviews, national, international, um, China, Al Jazeera, um, uh, media outlets from Sweden, Holland, Germany, the BBC. They just, everyone seemed to want to know about the New York Times, Washington Post, which I find interesting because I've never seen a Washington Post or New York Times article on residential schools in the United States, which were the model for Canada. But um, nevertheless, Something somehow clicked this time that didn't in 2018. Um, maybe it was just the repeated uh, efforts at education that finally started to, 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 to get some traction.
0: Yeah, I, I think that uh, there's, there's probably, to some extent, and maybe I'm, I'm speaking for myself on this, Raymond, but there's probably some extent about a guilt feeling. You know, you start owning up or you start saying, I, I know when I talk about some of the things that I saw in Muscogon is one of the places we played hockey, against their hockey team and they beat us constantly to be frank but i recall afterwards the it was an outdoor arena and you know in the middle of winter so it could be minus 30 cold. but i recall afterwards raymond that we would all get out of our our change out of our hockey gear get into our civvies and we go into the school and the nuns would serve us hot chocolate in those those you know green plastic cups yeah and it was such a welcome thing. And we would sit with, you know, our opponent, if you will, the other hockey team. And it just, you know, when I reflect on all of those times so much later in life, I realize, you know, what I was looking at them and saying, how fortunate they were to have this hockey arena right here and all of these things, not understanding for a minute, you know, what was going on or what was happening behind the scenes. So, you know, I have some um, history, personal history with uh, Muskaupin and and Daystar and Poormans and Gordon. I, it was part of where I grew up. So, um, so let's come back to to you for a second, Raymond. What what are you currently working on in your role as the head archivist at the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation?
1: Well, my focus has been on, to put it monthly, trying to decolonize um uh, a new institution because we are building a new archive from the ground up um after the TRC published its final reports they um they had they were sitting on over 4 million documents um 7000 uh interviews statements um maps photographs etc um that weren't organized um that didn't have a preservation program didn't have an access program um They just didn't have any of the typical archival um, methods and and functions that you need to have to to basically make these records searchable, available, and usable, and to be preserved over time so that future generations can have them. None of that um, existed. And um, I have to say, quite frankly, I think it was one of the biggest failings of the TRC. And I'm not trying to say that the TRC was a failure whatsoever, but um, by not assigning uh, a someone with a really strong archival background and experience to oversee the preservation of those records as they came in, um, the acquisition to ensure that they're sorted, um, that they're understandable, that their formats are readable, um, all of these things, all of the typical things that you need to do to make sure that this body of records could be made um, accessible. Um, But having said all that, those are traditional archival functions. And what we want to do, is try to find the indigenous voice in these records um, and to give that voice uh, a priority to have indigenous communities lead um, the policies and how these records should be used and accessed. Um, Because really what we're sitting on are very colonial records. I mean, this is like, you know, like Hannah Arendt says, this is the banality of evil. It's the daily operations of the residential schools, the human resource files, the building and construction maintenance, um, transportation, all of the things that you know basically go into running a school. But when, when you put them all together, the combination is uh, a systemic project of assimilation. Um, but if you, if you read the daily the files themselves, um, without putting them in that context, they are just banal administrative documents of school operations. Um, so trying to bring an Indigenous voice to all of that, um, in addition to making making the records available. So the first thing we had to do was to try and um, set up what we call call DPAS Description Access and Preservation Project. Um, That that is to set up an IT infrastructure because the records were over 95% digital. So the first thing I recognized we had to do was to set up an IT infrastructure that would allow for us to best manage these records um, from an IT sense. And we have that now. Um, I was able to get... uh, Canada Foundation for Innovation grant um, for six million dollars. Um, so the grant itself is it was quite a quite a journey of hundred pages and over ten members. But um, as of December, the 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 grant came through and it's retroactive, so we can use it to put towards our IT infrastructure. So we now have a, a very solid uh, foundation um, for the access and preservation um, component of the of the IT architecture. The question now is how to how to make this how to make these very colonial records um, uh, understandable in a way that has meaning for colonial or for communities, um, and that the communities themselves take the lead in their access and use. Um, essentially, to interrogate these records of oppression and assimilation in a, in a new way. Um, so we're looking at things like trying to build a participatory description application, so that. Um, communities can log in and write descriptions of photographs and documents um, that otherwise were described by, by religious orders and government administrations in a very sort of administrative manner So um, what they mean to those children. So one of the concepts of, uh, I kind of like to, to think of is that we're, we're basically um, creating um, case files of children. Um, you know, the, the, the organizing principles that by which these records were created were actually the operations of schools the organizing principles that we want to try to use are the lives of the children. So um, rather than having records of uh, hospitalization, um, school records, that kind of thing that are put into those administrative silos, we'd like to have a child as the organizing principle. And then the records of all those other different school administration, admission, hospitalization, et cetera, all related to that child. So that, you know, that's the organizing principle. So it's a, it's a indigenous student case file rather as the sort of a virtual,
0: but still meaningful. So Raymond, I have two questions. One on on that, is there a way that that you or your organization or um, an organization will have the opportunity to actually apply the Indigenous name to each child that is being discovered in these grave sites? That's an enormous question that we're still working
1: on. Um, one of the things we did, um, one of our first and largest projects was uh, called the Missing Children's Project. Um, and it built on volume five of the Truth and Reconciliation's final report, which was on missing children and unmarked grave sites. So uh, the first step was um, to organize and understand all of the records that the TRC had created regarding um, missing children and, and place them into a database. So when we, we, when we inherited all those records, we had Um, several lists of pdfs uh, spreadsheets on on the names of children Um, and there was also as the records were created they were the names of everyone teachers administrators and children were sort of harvested off of all of the pages to the to the result that there was um, a 10 million name list um, that was created of all the people that were found on all these all these documents so we're working with um, Carson Leung who's a A professor uh, of computer science major um, focusing on um, data mining. And he's trying to write algorithms that will try to sort this list down to what we know was approximately 150,000 children that attended these schools. Um, So, um, and it's well known that, you know, some very prominent national indigenous leaders had more than 10 different forms of their name used in admission and school records. So we have to try and sort out all of the sometimes deliberate, sometimes unintentional means that these names were removed. Sometimes the children were only used, only referenced by number. Um, they most commonly were given a uh, Western name, French or English, when they came to the school and they immediately lost their Indigenous name. So um, at the, result, the result was that we first, our step one or phase one of the Missing Children's Project was to try and collate and organize all of the records of the, um, the Missing Children Project that the TRC had investigated, which we did. Um, and we now have what we call a death register database, which is based on call to action 72 of the TRC's final reports. And so that, um, that database profiles each child with 15 fields of information, um, gender, name, original community, original language. Um, because often in the records that we found, um, uh, and 50% of the time, cause of death wasn't even recorded. Um, over 30% of the time, the gender of the, of the student wasn't even recorded. Um, So piecing together these these different pieces of information on each child is is a a long-term program and project to sift through all these records. So in phase one, we went through all of the records of the TRC, and we also created a commemorative website, which commemorates the loss of children, and we did that by spending over six months uh, visiting communities across the country and getting their input into what would be appropriate for an online commemoration of these lost children. Um, And ultimately, it was just the name of the child, the date of death, and the name of school. The rest of the records are now in the death register, accessible only by special permission of the family. Um, But phase two of of this project, which is just now starting um, and has been um, funded by SIRNA, as was phase one, um, will be the next year and a half. We will go through the rest of our almost five million records to guarantee that we have identified every piece of evidence we hold regarding the loss of a child. Um, now, getting back to your issue of, of identity, once we have the documentation of the loss of a child, we can start to pull together um, the names, um, which is an enormous um, question. I mean, we will go back to families um, and let them know that we've discovered these, this, this evidence. And potentially, in interviews and discussions and engagement, we might be able to get some more information on names. Um, the naming project with Dr. Liang will also help us on that. Um, and then. Our intention was um, when this project was completed that we would then move into unmarked grave sites. That, you know, as we were going through the names list and finding evidence of lost children, we would record any evidence that happened to be um, a- available of, of grave sites. But there would be a full blown project for this once we have a better understanding of the names. However, recent events occurred with, um, quite unexpectedly, and we're now, um, we're now, seeing, we're now doing both. Um, which is, a, which is um, an enormous uh, resource um, challenge for us. But um, I mean, it, it doesn't really do anything except just change the, the, the agenda a little bit. Um, so to do that, and we're actually to facilitate these investigations, um, uh, which will be community-led, we're providing, um, and it's at the point of being released, um, a data repository for each community so that they can freely access and store uh, research data as they're doing their investigations and then they won't have to worry about things like systems administration you know the cost of upgrades all that kind of thing we can take care of all the it issues and they can store their data there as they're doing their investigations there'll be um there'll be uh, sort of a an open source wiki style discussion um app that will be available as well for each community and they're all password protected by community so um, each of these repositories will serve a single community as they do their investigations. Having said all that, um, it's still more pieces to an enormous puzzle that I think will take generations to work on. Um, just to give you another example, um, I was recently speaking with Luke Marston, who was the um, the artist who created our Bentwood box um, for the TRC. Um, and I was back at his um, Khalid Bay on his reserve. This was just a couple of weeks ago, actually. And um Luke has just finished his um, master's degree studying um, Hakomalem, um, the language. And so I asked him actually the question you just asked me about uh, names. And Luke and I were looking at maybe doing an article on um, naming conventions because in archives, um, giving a name to the records is one of the questions of access points if you're looking for someone. What is the name you use to try and access the records by? And he told me that um, in his program, the, the programs taught out of SFU, his professor um, skipped the idea of names because it's so complicated in, in the language instruction that she literally avoided studying it in depth because there's just so much that goes on in, in those discussions. There's so many rules. Um, and as he's explained to me, it's quite common for people to have 10 to 15 names depending on the context of how they're using them. Um, so how to bring that into a uh, into a system that allows you to search for a name and find documents related to that name um, in a linear—it's—it's it's not a linear one-to-one scenario, which is a you know the database dream, but um, it's so it's going to be well, it's going to be regional, it's going to be contextual, um, and I think maybe um, I mean I'm not an IT expert, but uh, we are moving away from this kind of siloed archival model of. Describing a set of records um, and then moving on to the next set. When in fact, there's a matrix of relationships across all these records. So somehow we have to figure a way to capture that matrix of
0: relationships that brings in names. I mean, just even listening to you, Raymond, to try to describe it, uh, it sounds incredible. But one thing that I must say that I admire is the determination to try to take the notion of 351 or a number and actually talk about real human beings. These were children and they have a name Mm -hmm. and they should be identified and we should remember their name, not their number. Yeah.
1: And fundamentally one of the calls to action that hasn't been um, referenced very often is the call to allow provincial governments to allow um, indigenous citizens to reclaim their names on official documents. So their birth document, their driver's license, et cetera, et cetera, to be able to, to change the names that they, that's on those documents to their original Indigenous name. I mean, that hasn't been talked about very often, but it's starting. I, I know of a couple of examples where it has happened. And I think that's another example of public policy where that could be implemented. I mean, not easily, but at least we can recognize it. It's a process.
0: And I mean, it is it is a it is a big conversation, a big journey. I know those are two overused words. But that's really kind of where we are going as a nation. And, and I know that, um, you know, I just was on your website and, and I had a great opportunity to get to know the um the three commissioners that were involved. And um I was the inaugural president, CEO of the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, and and Willie, as we call him, Willie Wilton Littlechild, of course, was a board member and also a, a commissioner along with Marie Wilson and Marie Sinclair. But I thought it was very interesting that on your website, it just, uh, when it references what some of the work you're doing, that it's not just a part of who we are as survivors, it's a part of who we are as a nation, as a country. And I guess the one thing that I might ask um, Raymond, as we close this uh, this incredible podcast down, and I, with all you're doing, I just want to say thank you for finding some time to talk to me. Number one, it's just been a tremendous education and I thank you for that. But if I were to ask you, from your perspective, as you're, as you're so heavily invested in this, what is the most important fact you would like Canadians to know about the residential school system?
1: A phrase I, I go back to all the time, to the point where my, my wife accuses me of just like driving her crazy with it, is that we are what we choose to remember, but we are also what we choose to forget. And we're at a moment in time where we're making that choice. And that's who we are as Canadians, to, to to recognize and accept this fact um, that this is part of our history, um, um, and that acknowledgement is the first step to some form of a new reconciled relationship across settler and Indigenous communities. Um, and I mean, everyone is talking today about resurgence of Indigenous communities, not reconciliation. Um, but it's a it's a long term goal that will, as Senator Sinclair, or as Marie Sinclair has said, um, you know, it took seven generations to um, deconstruct these communities and their, their social relationships. It could take another seven generations
0: to rebuild them. That, that is, for so many of us, a hard concept to even understand. You know, I, I know that I've had a chance also to be at a turtle lodge. Um, it's such a wonderful spiritual place that it took me a while to understand that the notion of silence is sometimes more powerful than words. And, you know, that's a concept that, uh, again, it took me a while to sort of understand and I still struggle with it. But those are the kinds of opportunities that, that, as you say, if you choose to remember and you, you're interested and you want to learn what you're doing as head archivist of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation, Raymond is, uh, is, is going to be something that is legacy building. And again, uh, I've enjoyed the opportunity to meet with you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time. And certainly as a citizen of this country called Canada, I just want to say thank you to you, your team, all of the people involved at the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation for what you do. I really appreciate your time and thank you so much.
1: Well, and I thank you for the opportunity to to bring out these discussions. Um, This is what raises the consciousness of our nation. So I thank you.
0: Humans on Rights is recorded and hosted by Stuart Murray. Social media marketing by the creative team at Full Current in Winnipeg. Thanks also to Trixie May Bituin. Music by Doug Edmond. For more, go to humanrightshub.ca.
1: A production of The Sound Off Media Company.
0: I'm Matt Kundle, host of The Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast.